If you enjoy this podcast, please like us on Facebook and follow us on Instagram and visit our website at lifebetweenthevines.com. Now, when I came out here, I thought I would be the one picking grapes. I had no idea the amount of labor involved. And you just get an appreciation for just how hard it is. Um, and it's often really cold those nights when you're picking grapes and you leave sticky and exhausted. But you know that's just the beginning. Discovering and tasting wine shouldn't be a homework assignment. And we believe that the people who are closest to wine have the best stories. So open a bottle. And welcome to podcast number 537. This week we feature Lowell Giusti, founder of LJ Crafted Wines in San Diego. often referred to winemakers as mad scientists, but in this case, the winemaker is an inventor. Lowell Giusti has created a device that is unique in the wine industry, making the wine experience more green. Lowell is founder of LJ Crafted Wines, and he offers barrel-to-growler Napa Valley wines. The device is called the Wine Steward. Curious, right? Listen on. You can also hear Lowell on our Vino Lingo segment defining the term Wine Steward. I'm on the phone today with Lowell Giusti, and Lowell is the proprietor of LJ Crafted Wines in La Jolla, California. How you doing, Lowell? I'm good. Thank you. Thank you for taking the time today to be with us. This is going to be a really interesting interview because you have a, a very interesting product we're going to talk about in just a few minutes, but I want to, I want to talk a little bit about your background first. You're located uh, near San Diego, is that correct? Yes, we're in the sort of southern tip of La Jolla, uh, next to Pacific Beach. In a, in a little sort of neighborhood called Bird Rock. Great. And I imagine it's a little warmer there than it is where we are here. Is that right? It's a beautiful day here today. We had a lot of rain yesterday, which is unusual, but the road's drying out and it's spectacular. Well, that's good. And I would imagine you need the rain down that way as well. Sure, we can have some more, no problem. <laughs> yeah, right. First things first is I'd like to talk a little bit about your background, Lowell. Uh, as I understand it, you are from South Africa originally. Is that correct? We came here 10 years ago. And your background when you were there, I, I'm making an assumption here that you were already interested or in the wine business when you are in South Africa. Uh, yes, I was. I was fourth generation sort of in the business. And um, I think it all started with my great-grandfather started buying wine and selling it in 1880. That's... Uh, that's pretty amazing. I didn't realize the business went back that far. Are you saying specifically South Africa? Yes, that was in Johannesburg in South Africa, and um, that business was ultimately sold in 1970. And then in 1980, my father bought Plain Constantia, which we developed, I guess, from scratch. Interesting. So what made you decide to come to the uh, U.S.? Um, the, the vineyard, Plain uh, Constantia, um, had been sold, and we decided it was uh, time for a new adventure, and our uh, elder son was just finishing high school, and we thought, well, if we go as a family, we must try and go now. Um, I think I'd also had a feeling of, um, of California from the 1980s when I was at UC Davis and then worked at Robert Mondavi Winery, and 
one had some, you know, friends who were still here and from that time. And I just loved the spirit of entrepreneurship that I um, that I saw in the days when I was here. How long were you at Mandavi? Oh, just for the 1987 harvest. I was working sort of in the experimental department. We were um, harvesting grapes from different experiments and um, making different and making small batches of wine from them. Experimenting is something I talk about often with winemakers, and being that uh, Robert Mondavi was alive at the time, that must have been quite an experience. Yeah, that um, the whole winery, I think, had an incredible um, sort of work ethic and attitude towards it, and it was almost like as if um, if anything is possible, we're going to be the first to do it. And um, it was an exciting place to work. Were there any unusual grapes you were working with at the time? And when I say unusual, just not common to Napa Valley? Uh, no, it was mainly, um, you know, the, the sort of standard big five grapes, but with all kinds of vineyard experiments, um, from rootstock to leaf removal to, to everything. And um, it was just amazing to see how much effort was put into the fine detail of these experiments. Mm. I, I just can't even imagine what it would have been like at that time. So uh, what year did you start LJ Crafted Wines? Well, we came here in um, 2012, and we started buying grapes a year, about a year later. Um, and then we opened here in um, 2016. So, you know, it t- takes a while for the, especially for the Cabernet, you know, to get ready. And then the permitting and all that took um probably nearly a year longer than we expected. Where were your grapes coming from primarily? Um, we were buying them. The Cabernet was from Napa, the Pinot was from Russian River, and the Chardonnay was, well, that was also from Russian River. So we just bought those three to start with. At this point, do you have vineyards or do you have a, a plan to... Grow? No, we, we, we don't own a vineyard and we don't own a winery. We rather the idea is that we buy grapes from locations up in Northern California where those grapes have excelled, and then we use one custom crush facility um, that's up at Laird uh, near Yarnfield in Napa, and we use that as our sort of custom crush, and then we very we are very fortunate to meet um, Alison Green, uh, you know, before we started, and she's looked after the enology side for us up um, up in Napa. Now, is, is Alison independent, or is she part of Laird? No, Alison is independent. She has about six other customers. We might be the smallest. And, um, yeah, Alison knows the lie of the land. I think this year, will, this year will be her 50th vintage, so she knows what's going on there. <laughs> yeah, I guess after that amount of time you would. Well, the whole crux of talking to you is we're talking about the wine steward, which I think is a fascinating device. After doing a bit of studying on it, I guess number one is that you're not doing typical wine bottles. Explain to us what the wine steward is and your philosophy in terms of putting wine in a bottle. Um, So if I just go from sort of beginning to end of how our process works. So we make the wine up in Napa. Um, When the wine is is ready for drinking. We ship the full barrels down here, and then we connect our equipment um, into the barrel. So what happens, the way it works is it clamps uh, in a very sort of sturdy way into the bunghole, so it's an airtight um, fitting, 
and then down the middle of it is a stainless steel tube, a narrow stainless steel tube that goes to the bottom of the barrel. And then we push about sort of four PSI of nitrogen carbon dioxide into the top of the barrel, and that pushes the wine out um, until the barrel is completely empty. And all the wine that we serve out the barrel is in refillable bottles. So, um, uh, so far, the little piece of equipment um, has been through over 350 barrels, and we haven't had one problem. So, so the, um, I guess the, the key thing is that the airspace in the barrel doesn't have any oxygen in, so the wine stays completely fresh until the barrel is empty. So just to be clear on this, obviously these are much like beer growlers. These are wine growlers, which I've never heard that put together before. Yes, um, we call them growlers because they were refillable bottles, and that's what everyone thought you know, um, was the name for a refillable bottle. And so we kind of stuck with that name. Uh, still looking for another, a better name, but we haven't <laughs> found one. Yeah. yeah, good luck. That's going to be a challenge, but uh, it would definitely be a name you would own, I would think. Um, yes, it's, it takes a lot of, for a tiny business like ours to change people's mindset into a whole new name. It might be difficult, but um, anyway, we haven't found that name yet. No, I think what you're doing is brilliant, and correct me if I'm wrong, the caps on the bottles are very similar to, oh gosh, there were some beers from a long time ago that had these wire-type uh, ceramic enclosures. Is that right? Yeah, it's a swing top. It's a wire swing top. And you often see them on some water bottles. Um, I guess the most famous beer brand where you see it would be Grolsch beer. And it's, it like clips on, so it forms an airtight seal. And if you put the bottle on its side, it doesn't leak. So one can reuse them. Um, one obviously doesn't get any cork taint. And um, we're able to to wash the bottles at a, you know, at a high temperature without any damage to the swing top. This is a totally fascinating concept. And, and just as a quick aside, thank you for saying Grolsch because I haven't drank that in so many years and I used to love it. And I couldn't remember the name. This is a fascinating concept to be about as green as you can possibly be and, and man, a tiny footprint in terms of uh, what you're doing. It's a great idea. Yeah, I um, we're just trying to simplify everything and serve the wine in a simple way as possible. So it's just uh, spread out the barrel into a refillable bottle. You bring your refillable bottle back. We've converted the, the glass washer into a bottle washer, so it washes the inside of the bottle and does a, a final sort of rinse at about 190 Fahrenheit, so that will you know, kill any things you don't want. And... Um, and then before we fill the bottle again, we sparge it like it would, you know, with nitrogen, carbon dioxide. So as we're filling the bottle, um, the wine will displace, um, you know, the nitrogen, carbon dioxide and not pick up oxygen. And then the small amount of airspace at the top of the bottle should be inert as well. So it's very similar to a typical bottling line, other than it's not a typical bottling line. Yes, it's done by hand. <laughs> and And then we're able to to set the, you know, the pouring so that one would fill a liter bottle in about 20 seconds. Um, if one went quicker, you'd get a bit of foam developing, and that sort of slows you down because you have to wait for it to dissipate. You have to be very patient in the process. Well, I think so. You just let the wine run down the side, and it takes 20 seconds a bottle. It's, um, 
whenever the staff are not busy, there are always bottles to fill. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. Do you ship the wine at all? No. One thing that I, when I came here, one thing I did not want to do was to try and build a brand through the distribution chain. Mm. Um, and so uh, what we've done is rather created like a community following and uh, people come along um, with their empty bottles and we refill. We, we don't, um, I haven't been confident about shipping the bottles with swing tops and the growlers are really meant for reuse. So shipping them back doesn't really make the empty bottles back doesn't add up. I get that. It certainly makes sense. You're not going to get into this loop of it, but it is kind of nice, the idea of doing a community-style wine. Has that uh, developed into something? Do you have followers is what I'm asking? Yeah, we have about um, 700, um, you know, wine club members um, or growler club members. And if we do a heat map, you know, of where everybody lives, it's um, a lot of it, I'd say, 80% of it is, is in with half a mile radius. Now, the one thing I'm really curious about is is what you had to go through with uh, the county, the state, anything in terms of this process being so completely different for licensing. Was that was that a, a challenge for you? It wasn't too difficult. Um, as far as the, the sort of wine uh, licenses, we have an urban winery license, and then we have something called an alternating proprietorship agreement with um, with the Laird um, up in Napa so we can make a wine at either facility. Um, and the urban winery um, license gives us the license to, to bottle or to fill bottles. Uh, the difficult, I think the most difficult part of all was, we because we're on a hill, was um, all the disability rules because we're on a slope and um, the place was never designed for that. Mm. And this is going back seven years and then the other side was because we we able to serve food um there was a lot of sort of infrastructure we had to build in to get all the allowance to get all the permits for that the wine, the wine on its own was pretty simple doing something like this obviously you're going to want to have something like food to make a little bit more of the experience i totally understand that the wine steward itself is a patented device correct yes um has it Anybody done anything like this in terms of wine growlers that you're familiar with? or um, Not direct out of a barrel, to my knowledge. Um, I think we would have heard about it um, you know, if, someone, if someone did it out of a barrel. But there are some you know, urban wineries around uh, doing growlers as a sideline, but um, I, don't, I haven't come heard of anyone doing it growler only. Um, it really all started with us when we thought growlers would be a good idea and because everything took a lot longer and we didn't know what we were really in for, we bottled half our wine in 750 more bottles in the beginning. Um, and we said to you know customers, would you like the same wine in the 750 ml bottle with a cork? Or because we're not paying for the packaging, would you like um, a one liter refillable bottle um, on which you pay a $6 deposit, and 99-plus percent people said, we'll take that extra bit of wine for the same price. <laughs> and so we never so we never bottled again in a, with the cork. That's amazing. And just to be clear, while you're making the wine in Napa Valley, you're not selling the growlers in Napa anywhere. Is that right? No. Um, the, our only selling point is, is down here. 
Yeah. That makes it really a destination for people. I imagine there's a lot of talk in the community about, hey, you got to check this place out. Yeah, I think we, we get a lot of talk. I think um, if we have 700, you know, Growler Club members, I think, well, if I, I don't really have a figure on this, but if the staff tell me maybe a third of our members are members because of what we're doing and they like to support it. Yeah. Um, and the, the environmental friendliness of it. Um, so that does work, um, you know, in our, you know, in our favour. And also, um, I mean, sustainability has got to be also economic sustainability. And we, um, you know, we don't have any packaging costs or bottling costs, which um, it's a very big proportion of, you know, any wine industry's cost structure, any wine winery's cost structure. Well, in the end, you have to be profitable, and something like this strikes me as it could be not only profitable, but maybe your prices might be a little more reasonable. I don't know. Is that a fact? Uh, yes, I think so. So if our Napa Cabernet is, you know, for one litre is about, say, $58, um, you're not going to find that around much easily for, you know, for top-end um, Calisturga Cabernet grapes. Sure. That's very interesting. So how did you end up uh, choosing Allison as your winemaker? Uh, so when I worked at Mondavi, um, I got to know Phil Fries uh, quite well. He was in charge um, of, of the, all their vineyards. And uh, his wife is uh, Zelma Long. He, you know, she's pretty famous amongst the women winemaking sort of fraternity. Sure. And, um, and Phil also did some consulting for us in South Africa. So, you know, one became friends, and um, I went to them, and I said, you know, this is where I am. Have you got any recommendations? Mm-hmm. And so Zelma said, um, let me call my neighbor. And um, she called Alison, and the next day we met. And from then it was all system burn. She's been unbelievable. And because of her, um, you know, her whole network and um, and also having about six other clients, it's worked really well. So, you know, if one of her clients has a barrel that doesn't fit into a bottling run or something like that, it's very easy for us to just slot one barrel in over here. So we would just buy that barrel from them. Oh, that's a very handy situation. Hmm. And as I understand it, Allison was one of the uh, earliest female winemakers in, uh, in California. Is that right? Uh, yes. Well, this will be a 50th harvest, so she, I think she's ahead of anyone else because she started as a teenager. Because her, um, her dad owned a Simi winery, and he hired the first woman winemaker in California. That was Mary Ann Graff. Mm-hmm. And then Allison worked for her for a while, and then for, for Andre Chelichev, who he also hired from Burley Vineyards in those days. And, and he's obviously... Um, you know, very famous in the historical um, California winemaking, um, you know, structure. <laughs> and, of course, the industry's changed quite a bit where there are many, many female winemakers and they're growing, which is nice to see that. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, if I look at our um, you know, little demographic that buy wine here, I think it's quite a lot more female than male. And I think the the female ability to taste wine might be more important um, to have a female wine if most of the, your, your customer base is female. And I think they have very good sort of sensory capabilities, maybe better than men.
That's entirely possible. I understand that women have more or better taste receptors, and I'm certainly open to that because this is a good thing that there are more female winemakers. It's, it's simply opening up to what's been a male-dominated business. Yes. Right. Now, I'm curious about, obviously, you're, you're literally, I'm using the word pouring from a, a barrel. Uh, are you vintage-oriented then? I would assume so. Yes. Okay. Completely. We, it's, everything's in small batches, and about 80% is single vineyard. What kind of reaction are you getting from people who come in for the first time to your, uh, well, you don't have a tasting room. You said that, didn't you? Yeah, so um, I think, you know, down here in, in San Diego, we have very few people um, with a wine production sort of background. Um, and so it's mainly just the consumer side. A lot of people realize, I think, what, that what we're doing is they can see the environmental side because they're holding the growler. Um, I like to think that what we are doing um, is much more important than the size of our business and that we can be an example for many other tasting rooms um, anywhere in the world because for anyone who's worked in a tasting room, you know how, how quickly that sort of single-use bottle bin, bin like fills up. Sure. And why shouldn't we be serving the wine straight off the barrel or out of a keg to the tasting room customers? I mean, uh, if we're really serious about the environment, I mean, the statistics are out there that, um, you know, single-use bottle, wine bottles are represent approximately half the carbon footprint of the whole wine industry. And, um, I mean, and I think the industry needs to question more and more the fact that the majority of Bottles in the U.S. are shipped from from other countries, shipped across oceans. And if you say the average bottle weighs about 500 grams, and we fill that with 750 grams of wine and use it once, it doesn't really make sense. Sure. And, and there are some bottles out there that are much heavier than others, which, of course, adds to the weight, which adds to the shipping and creates that whole circle, doesn't it? Yes. Um, I think we, um, I don't know how to put it, but it's difficult to claim, claim sustainability if you're using a heavyweight bottle. <laughs> With this, it's just, I mean, the figures are out there. Yeah, I agree. I've seen that before. It It's, <laughs> it like becomes a political thing, if you know what I mean. So, uh, yes, I get that. So your your wine steward is that something that you are making for sale for anybody else? Is that something you'd make available? That might be a presumptuous question, but uh... so I'll if I say our dream is that our little place down here becomes proof of concept, and then we produce and sell the wine steward, um, uh, you know, two wineries, um, and we have the patents in the U.S. and then also Spain, Italy, France, and Germany. And um, we'll see if we can produce it and find a demand for it. Um, I think up to now, our focus has been a lot on keeping our little place over here going and working. Um, and one needs to spend more time on selling the equipment. That's its own gig unto itself, isn't it? I mean, you, you, you know, you're... It is completely... Yeah. Hmm. You've got the wine, that's your focus, but then you have this device which would be really... Uh, just revolutionary. Yes. I mean, a, a barrel can be an impractical thing to work with, um, but 
I mean, in our little situation, it's it's worked pretty easily. Um, uh, and I think for, um, you know, especially for small wineries, if they can um, sort of adapt and just sell the wine out the barrel, it, it uh, makes a lot of sense. Well, who doesn't like to taste from a barrel? To me, that's half the attraction right there, wouldn't you say? I think that's what kind of got me going. I always, maybe it's a subjective thing, but I always felt the wine tasted straight out, better straight out the barrel. And then, you know, one saw the refillable bottle in the local beer industry, and, um, and I think that got things going with, you know, as to how, how do we do this for wine? Sure. The, the word fresh is so commonly used in wine these days, you couldn't get any more fresher than something coming out of the barrel. Yes. Is there any other kind of uh, vessel that you'd be putting wine in at this point? I, I know we're talking green. I understand that. I'm just curious about that. Um, I, um, oh, yes, we do. So sometimes we have uh, customers um, who might be, you know, flying somewhere and they say, oh, we want to take the wine with us. So we have a a 750ml can with the screw cap mm. and uh, we fill those and those can go in your suitcase on the aircraft or whatever but they're for single use and um, and empty uh, they weigh 38 grams so they're very light and they um, but we they've they've gone off we're selling less of them than I originally thought but I mean there's a small demand for them Sure, but I could see it. Somebody wanting to say, hey, I've had this wine. This is unique. This is right out of the barrel. A good idea. Um, and there are so many people doing different kinds of uh, vessels like cans and, and, and boxes and bags, which, of course, creates more trash. So gets us back into the problem we've had all along, right? Yeah, well, the advantage of the can is that it's very easy to recycle, um, unlike glass. Sure, and there are cans that uh, there are even water cans out there you can buy at airports or wherever that are reusable, which are very nice. I've got a couple I use myself versus buying separate water bottles per se. Yes. Now, here's going to be my dumbest question of all, so please have patience with me. If somebody were to, you know, they they get a couple of bottles refilled, um, is there any aging potential? Well. I mean, the bottling process is similar to a commercial bottling process. Um, uh, we, uh, for six months to a year, it's no problem. We haven't really kept them for much longer. Um, I think uh, most wine that is bought from us is probably drunk within the same week. Um, but yes, it will it will last, you know, as long as any other wine with a corking. I don't see why it, should, why it shouldn't. There's, Okay, we we're not going to get any breathing, you know, through the through the swing top, sure. um, and there's a small little part, you know, a tiny bit of airspace in the top that should be mainly nitrogen or CO2. So it's pretty much the same as a normal bottle. I think the difference is that our bottles are, you know, they're clear uh, water bottles compared to um, a normal wine bottle, which um, you know has got sun or light protection on it. So as long as you're keeping it in a dark, cool place, it should be fine. Or ideally drinking it. Yes, yes, correct. Yeah, I think I think there's very, but there's there are very few bottles that are put away for a long time. Yeah, I get that because it is again this fresh concept. I think what's fun is seeing when you are filling the bottle uh, as a wine lover. It's it's kind of exciting to see that because it's uh, you know this bottle is made exclusively for you. That's that's kind of a fun idea. 
Yes, and then they can see it getting filled in front of them. So it's not a straight out the barrel. Now, we had talked about Cabernet. Uh, what other wines are you making right now? So um, on the well, on the white side, we have a, a rosé from Pinot Noir from Corneros, an Albarino from Corneros, um, a Sauvignon Blanc from Napa, um, a Chardonnay from, from Russian River. Um, on the red side, um, we've got uh, two Pinot Noirs, um, one from the very southeastern sort of little part of Napa. It's not really Corneros. Um, another one that's a more sort of full-bodied Pinot um, from Petaluma. And then uh, we have some Sangiovese um, from Lake County. And so it's quite a you know big range. We also have a Grenache-Sura Mouverde range from from Mendocino. That's great. That's far broader than I would have expected with this concept. Yeah, so at the moment we have 14 different wines, you know, on offer and I think another question people often ask us is, you know, how long does it take you to go through a barrel? Well, um, we can take, um, you know, up to three or four months um, if the whole barrel is sold by the glass and going very slowly. But uh, the integrity sort of of the last glass we pour from the barrel is as good as the first glass. It's been a you know interesting sort of project. I think so far, um, you know, with counting the amount of growlers we've sold here, that's 144,000 um, single-use bottles that we have not used. That's 12,000 cases, or so it's a significant amount. I know it's been over time, but um, if we had a bigger demand, we could do more. Yeah, we're just in, we're as big as the community. And you're making a difference. And hopefully other tasting rooms can, you know, will see what we're doing and get ideas for themselves about um, reusing, about, you know, using less uh, single-use bottles. It'll save them a lot of money as well. <laughs> I have uh, one question I like to ask all the winemakers I talk to, and uh, you can take a moment to think about it. Uh, you've obviously have a history with your family in winemaking. I'm sure you've done plenty of media and uh, interviews, but what's the one question that you've never been asked that you would like to be asked? Um, I think uh, I think it's a question I got from a customer on Saturday night, <laughs> and the customer said to me, "Why do you call this um, this beautiful?" You know, bottle a growler, it's like a disgrace. <laughs> um, so I thought, well, um, so it made me think quite a bit and, you know, look at, you know, wh- why do we do it? And, you know, when we came here 10 years ago, um, a, a growler to me would have been an angry dog. Mm. Um, but, you know, looking at, you know, part of the history of it, um, it, it really started about, you know, 50 years before pro- prohibition, where people would uh, fetch their wine maybe in a pail from, you know, oh, sorry, uh, their beer in a pail from, you know, the local brewery. And if there was a vigorous fermentation, that sound, you know, would be the, the sound of a growler or else. Um, oh. But in those days, uh, they often sent the kids to go fetch the pail of beer from the brewery. And there was a term about running the growler. And um, the term might have come from the angry person who'd been waiting too long for his beer, or else the angry person who, when he got his pail, um, he had 
too much foam and not enough beer. <laughs> and, and maybe it's a term that came from the kids. Um, but anyway, it's a term and we now have our growler club. But if um, someone can think of a better name for that bottle, um, we're happy to give them, send them a complimentary growler. <laughs> yeah, that could be a contest. I'm sure you've considered that already. Lowell, this has been a fascinating conversation for me. I think this is uh, something I would love to try. I, uh, I would love to get back down that way again soon. I've been there in a few years. But I hope I get to try it in person and certainly would hope to meet you someday. Thank you for taking the time. Thank you. It's been a privilege. Learn more by visiting ljcraftedwines.com. Thanks for listening. Subscribe to the podcast at lifebetweenthevines.com or sign up to our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Life Between the Vines comes to you from Fifth Floor Recording Company in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Produced and edited by Ray Fister. Our host is Kay Paskoff. Our web geek is Dan Gisha. Original music by Ray Fister. Copyright 2023.